0: House is a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. In this episode, the Argentinian writer Cesar Aira talks with his Norwegian translator, Kristina Solum, in a conversation that took place on September 14, 2016. Introduction by Gisla Selnes, professor of literature at the University of Bergen.
1: Thank you. I am honored and a little bit embarrassed to be allowed to introduce the prolific literary phenomenon Cesareira on his first visit to Norway. Needless to say, it's impossible to do justice to the author of little less than 100 very diverse books in 10 minutes. Yet this seems to be my duty, so I'll do my best. No time to waste. César Aira was born in Coronel Pringles, in the agrarian hinterland of Buenos Aires, in 1949. In 1967, he moved to the capital, settling in the unremarkable Flores district, where he still lives and writes. Aira insists that the petit bourgeois routine of his everyday life is of great advantage to his artistic creativity. Nothing out of the ordinary ever happens, so he is totally dependent on his own imagination to weave the stuff his novels are made on. Most of Ida's books are literary artefacts that do not aspire to the effects of psychological realism. No profundity, no existential anxiety only flat fictional figures that may be easily manipulated for literary purposes. If if they have to be borrowed from cartoons or pulp fiction, so be it. To a contemporary Norwegian audience familiarized with endless autobiographical novels as a key to literary success, this may sound strange. Yet Ira belongs to a different literary climate by birth as well as by conviction. As an Argentinian, Jorge Luis Borges is probably Aira's single most important, indeed inevitable, precursor. Yet Ira places Borges in tandem with several representatives of the avant-garde and surrealist movements dating all the way back to Uruguayan born Comte de Lautreamont and his haunting chants de maldoror An unlikely combination to be sure, yet this cross fertilization has yielded Iris' peculiar literary style and the genre he himself refers to as Dadaist fairy tales. Thus Ira's success and sometimes his notoriety derives, in part, I believe, from his flair for disjunctive influences, from his creative choice of precursors, and his strong misreading of their work. He makes them different, they make him new. Ira is decidedly post-boom, even a post-post-boom writer. He does not subscribe to the values of so-called magic realism. He doesn't even care for the idea of a literary masterpiece, a notion that, according to him, belongs to the 19th century. The work of art per se is a thing of the past. What matters today? is the concept behind it, the procedures surrounding it, the script to which the work owes its existence. Cesar own procedure is the fuga hacia adelante, the flight forward. He produces one publishable page per day, banning any posterior correction whatsoever. Thus, every Aira book is quite literally an experiment conducted in order to see whether his idea for a novel is sustainable or not. Sometimes the improvised plot works an unheard-of magic. Other times, one has the feeling, to quote one of Ida's critics, of watching a person stuck under a fence trying to squeeze his way to the other side. Yet, interestingly enough, the latter scenario is no less fascinating than the former. And there's a lot to be learned from observing a narrative gone awry in an ironesque style. Ayra's Fuga Hacia Adelante thus explains not only the considerable number of books with his name on the spine, it takes him about 100 days to write a novel which allows for three to four titles per year at best, but also the weird ending of many of them. Frequently, Ira has to mobilize the most far-fetched inventions in order to get his twisted plotline to its final destination. The first of Ira's novels to be published in Norway was an episode in The Life of a Landscape Painter issued in 2010, and followed the year after by How I Became a Nun. These are probably the most celebrated of Aida's narratives, yet they are maybe not as representative of his oeuvre as one might think. An episode in the life of a landscape painter is unique in being the only Aida novel based on well-documented historical events. It contains hardly any abstruse elements at all. Indeed, it reads almost like a normal contemporary novel with a nice deconstruction of some of the foundational scenarios of Argentinian literature. How I Became a Nun features Cesar in drag. It tells the tragic story of a little girl by that name, who finally drowns in a tub of strawberry ice cream? A scene that is actually and paradoxically narrated by Cesareira herself. <laughs> what sets this novel off against the bulk of Ida's work is not only the fact that many of its episodes touch on the autobiographical, also, its writing is less improvised, the scenes more carefully crafted in advance than is normally the case in an Aira novel. This month's publication of three novels in one volume gives us another side of Cesar perhaps more representative of his oeuvre at large, The Pink Dress, Ghosts, and Festival. In the first of these three, we return to the Argentinian Pampa, where we follow the vagaries of the quasi-magical red-pink dress referred to in the title, weaving its way through the different strata of pre-modern Argentinian society. Cesareira's ghosts, from the second novel, are the exact opposite of what ghosts usually are in so-called ghost stories. They live on a modern construction site, not in an old castle, They are visible in broad daylight, not only by night, etc. The underlying question, however, is the following. How much is a living human being willing to sacrifice for the once-in-a-lifetime experience of joining the ghost-spectacular New Year's Eve party? What if it turns out that the price you have to pay is that you yourself must be dead? In the last of the three novels, Festival, we follow a renowned director of high art movies who brings his 90-year-old mother to a hectic festival celebrating his own oeuvre. Despite appearances, the story is not simply a willful humorous it contains more or I sometimes think to myself perhaps less than meets the eye a certain resigned heroism an embedded poetics of narrative and as if to neutralize its slapstick tendencies festival ends with an almost lyrical revelation which for an Ira novel is a bit of a surprise, to say the least. Before concluding, I would like to draw attention to the essayistic qualities of Ira's writing. Not only has he produced a series of illuminating longer essays on the poetry of Alejandra Pisarnik, on the limericks of Edward Lear, on the French Argentinian cartoonist and writer Coppi, on contemporary art. Also, in his novels, Aira frequently leaves the plot line in order to pursue the theoretical implications of the narrated events, to elaborate on the metaphysics of time, on the relation between the actual and the virtual, etc., as if an undercurrent of poetic reflection actually constitutes the primus motor of his literary universe. And in these passages, felicitous aphorisms abound. To quote just one from Fragmento de un Diario en los Alpes, Fragments from a Diary in the Alps, Art is the activity through which the world may be reconstructed when the world has disappeared. A brief anecdote to end my talk. This summer, I had my first real-life experience that the world is about to yield to Cesar literary universe. As you may remember, during the Euro 2016 final, the game, soccer game, was interrupted by a huge swarm of insects, mots attracted by the immense spotlights used to illuminate the pitch. Viral photos of the dramatic moment when an injured Cristiano Ronaldo had to be substituted showed one of these intruding insects posing seemingly innocently on Ronaldo's right eyebrow. Faced with such a scenario... Any true reader of Aira's oeuvre would immediately suspect the workings of some intergalactic monster plot designed by an evil soccer spirit, if not a colony of messy clones remote-controlling an army of mechanical moths from some abandoned toy factory on the Argentinian Pampa. I take this episode, and my spontaneous reaction to it, as proof that César Aira's fiction has actually changed the way we, some of us at least, perceive the world. My time is up, and it's a great pleasure to yield the floor to El Milagroso, Dr. Aira, in conversation with Cristina Solum. Thank you again.
2: Well, thank you very much, and uh, this introduction was so complete that I feel... Now we have nothing to say. (laughs) Yes, I have nothing more to say. Stole all all my points. (laughs) It was a little exaggerated in the praise, but thank you very much.
0: I also want to thank you, César for coming to Norway. Um, uh, I know that it's been said already a few times, but we've been wishing for you to come to Norway for such a long time. Wow. I know the House of Literature has to. Um Aida, you're one of those authors that one reads with the feeling that one is reading something genuine, something uh, that one has never read before. And you're also an extremely prolific writer, as Gisle Selnes has has said. I think you've written eighty to ninety. Yes, short I novels? hate
2: the word prolific. Oh sorry. <laughs> yes. A friend told me that I should bring a, a pistol to this and <laughs> the first one that said the word prolific I kill him. <laughs>
1: Psh, because
2: uh, Yes, my books are, are many, but the pages are not so many. Because I have published books of 30 pages, of 20 pages, of 9 pages. And these are no, no books, are plaquettes. But they figure in the bibliography and the people count, of 100, but 100, no. All my complete works will enter in three novels of Stephen King.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In any case, all those uh, different—I have not read all the different stories. But I, um, whenever I read a new one, um, I get the impression that I, I never read the same story again. Yes. because there is always a different world and different characters, although maybe there are some common themes but
2: yes the, this may come from insatisfaction. I never wrote something that I find really well done and so I say I have to I'll have to do something different to see if I come to... To something really good. But yes, I. The only books of mine that I feel rather satisfied are the most, how can I say, the most literary ones. The, the ones that the only merit that they have. Is the literary merit, not the sentimental or the etc <clears throat> and the ones that looks more like a fairy tale, that I, that the ones that are just the pure fable, the pure history.
0: The, yes, those are the most that you appreciate the most. Yes, yes, yes.
2: In the introduction, they professor told about a, a definition that I have done of my books as Dadaist fairy tales but now I have one better they are literary toys for adults <laughs> yes toys because the idea is the playfulness the pleasure of reading and the pleasure of Mirrored by the pleasure of reading. And they are literary.
0: How, how do you get the ideas for so many different stories?
2: Well, I need first an idea that is enough bizarre, enough paradoxical, enough. Uh, I don't know. For example, I think, uh, what can I say? Uh, a staircase that when you mount, you descend. How can that be? So, this kind of paradoxical things may the the first the, the first. Moment Mm -hmm. to begin. Then I go. uh, How can I say? Desarrollo this idea. You develop the idea. Develop this idea. But this idea is completely developed in five or six or ten pages, and then I need something more. Yeah. And this something more to go on must be something of myself, something personal. So I need these two things, the irrational logic, the paradoxical, and the personal. And there must be an equilibrium. Not so much of the paradox because That would be something like a crossword, something without human interest. But not so much human interest because that would go to the sentimental, to the pathetic, to the autobiographic. So it must be the two things. In balance. In balance, yes. How can I speak in English? I have a tendency to use the Latin word. If I have balance and equilibrium... Equilibrium. <laughs> yes. When I have wet and humidity, I use humidity. <laughs>
0: Norwegians <laughs> tend to do the opposite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, um, and I was thinking also about the, the writing... But, uh, oh, sorry, when I the was
2: in, <laughs> in New York in broadcast in the radio... I said, this thing of humidity, and wet, and the man of the radio said, yes, but when you are in the shower, you have not humidity, you have wet. (laughs) 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 Yes, there is a difference between the Germanic and the Latinic. Yeah. (sighs)
0: Um, I'm very... Curious about asking uh, you about this way that you have a writing that Gisle Zellers also mentioned. It's very famous, this flight forward, Uh, fuga hacia delante. Is it true that you always write in this exact same procedure? And could you describe it?
2: Well, yes. I think there are two kinds of writers. Well, there are millions of kinds of writers, but two principal kinds in the technique of of reading novels, for example, is that there are some ones that let everything flow quickly, fast, and then make the work that they really like, that is polishing, correcting. And there are the other, like me, the other kind, that we wrote we write as if we will die tonight so the best we can so I go very lento slowly very slow thinking every word every sentence and I love this especially because of the writing of the work of writing do you write by hand? yes I am a militant of the pen, <laughs> and I have a huge collection of <laughs> Montblancs. Yeah, you always. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've heard that you always write with Montblanc, and on paper that is the same as uh, the yes, one that the, the, the uh, Argentinian no, I, I don't note. use it anymore.
2: Okay. Teso was, was printed on. once I I knew that some notebooks were made with a paper. ...of the same fabricant of the paper that was used for the...
0: The money, the 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 notes. yeah the the notes.
2: That was uh, a big stimulus for me. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I... Yes, I like this work, this slow world of reading by hand and feel the nerves that go from the hand to the brain and to the from the brain to the hand and this work and i cannot understand this 99% of the writers who write in the computer well everyone does it <laughs> yes i go very I never write more than one page a day or less than one page. And so I am not so prolific. One page <laughs> a month. It gave, gives, at the most, 300 pages a year. My books are short. Never pass of 100 page, 120 page. So to publish three books a year is not so... To be prolific you don't have to write much. You have to write well. And that's the prolificity of the thing. Because literature is a qualitative activity, not a quantitative. So these last years the only thing of that the critics face of my books are not that are good but that they are many. (laughs) So I decided not to publish more for a number of years. Now I write for myself. Well, here in Norway,
0: (laughs) unfortunately, there are are not so many Cesar Ida books yet, so (laughs) we're not blessed with that many books. Um, I also also have the impression that you don't self-revise that
2: well yes. Written so slow, thinking so much every word, there is not so much to to revise, to correct, because I did it the best I can. What can I do? Transform myself in Borges and make it better? No. It's impossible. So I yes. This thing of the correction is like making enter a ghost that will make it better uh, will, will be a Kafka to, who came from the, the sky to... No, oh, one writes as one can write and one of my favorite authors is Stendhal this uh, elegant uh, descuido
0: um, <laughs> um, carefreeness
2: yes the what the Italians call uh, sprezzatura the, uh, nonchalance nonchalance <laughs> yes I love this yes. literature has not so much importance it's not a nuclear plant <laughs> so <laughs> if it is not so well well this importance.
0: Now I will stick a little bit more to this idea of the flight forward, your, the, your way of writing. Um, I'm also under the impression that a part of the philosophy is that you have to correct me if this is wrongly represented, but once you've written one thing, it's like the card is played. So what comes afterwards, you have to adjust to what was already written?
2: No, not so much. Not so much. No, but there is a thing I discovered once, and it's a literary toy for me, that um, when you write a novel, you can have a, a character... The thing that uh, he loves, he hates, he goes, he comes. And in the last pages, you can say he was a midget. And so changed everything, no? (laughs) Yes, I did it the first time in one of of my novels that one of the protagonists was a woman, an old woman. And it was a little... um, I didn't like very much what I was doing. So in in one of the last pages, I thought that she was blind. (laughs) So everything changed. And this is uh, an advantage of literature, of reading on the cinema. Because in the cinema, if he's a midget, he's a midget from the start. Hmm. Yes, this retrospective mm-hmm. comprehension of what has happened. Yes, it's a trick. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, as uh, as we've already heard, <laughs> I had planned this. <laughs> um, you also have um, very different um, literary influences. Gisela mentions. Uh, French symbolism, uh, Lautreamont, and yes. uh, Borges, yes. and uh, the classics, and at the same times, at the same time, at least in your books, we find very many references to popular literature, yes. um, cartoons, or, or, mm. and uh, yeah, copy was already mentioned, um, but also a lot of characters looking at soap operas. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you read yes, and how it I
2: influences? Know. Well, I'm <laughs> very high bro and low bro, but nothing of middle bro. Nothing in between. Yeah. Yes, I love, of course, my reading. My serious reading is Shakespeare, Kafka. Yes, I go on. I, I read more than read now, but also. I don't know. Alf. You know Alf? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I love Alf and he has inspired me many of what I have written. And these cartoons bizarres of Reman Stimpy and uh, Yes Superman, the little Lulu. Yes, I don't know. And Novelas uh, yeah, policiales. Detective novels. The
0: crime novels, yeah.
2: Yes, these are my favorite. Well, in this, uh, we were talking about uh, an, a speech I have to give in Berlin. And uh, I did what I At could.
0: Festivals,
2: yeah. But the only rather intelligent idea that I put in this speech was this, that we, serious readers, we live all our life with the Damocles sword on our heads of the rereading. Because serious literature is infected by the re-reading. All the classics you have to even if you don't re-read literally they are contaminados contami-
0: contaminated,
2: contaminated by the idea of the re-reading. So when we come to certain age in our reading life we go to the detective novel. That is, by essence, the novel that you don't read because you already know who killed the the victim, no? (laughs) So this is, for so many serious readers of classics that in his old years pass to the detective novel, I think this is the the idea, no? To liberate oneself from the rereading reading thing.
0: To liberate yourself from the rereading. reading
2: <laughs> um, I read all the time the, the good old detective novels of the golden age of the 40s and 30s in England. Marjorie Allingham, Edmund Crispin, John Dickson Carr Dorothy Sayers but now I am trapped infected by Lee Child I don't know if you know Lee Child he's a genius (laughs) yes I don't read nothing but Lee Child (laughs) yes in these travels in the plane so long because we live there in the end of the world so this 13 hours in the plane uh, 500 pages of the Child is perfect <laughs> but I read one, I read two and so I said no 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 I have to stop and I bought and I began to re-read the Walter Benjamin book But I go on reading, Lee Child.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you use this in your writing? Do you use these readings in your writing a lot? No,
2: no, No. because the detective novel is just the opposite of what I do, no? Detective novel is not improvised. You have to have a plot Mm -hmm. complete before... No, I never think in advance what I was going to write because then it would be reduction, bureaucratic reduction of something already thought. No.
0: Ah, nothing. <laughs> no. But did you ever uh, think of writing something longer? Did you try to write something longer?
2: No. No? No. 100 pages is the longest I go. The only thing, maybe longer, is is doing a series of of little novels with the same characters. I tried once to to do this, and I invented a a superhero that was called Barba Verde, Green Verde because my children always insisted that I have a green bird, I don't know why. <laughs> well, I invented this. And I wrote four little novels under the general title of Las Aventuras de Barba Verde, the Barba Verde Adventures. And I thought, and I give them to uh, a Spanish publisher, and I suggested that he publish one every six months. So when he came to the fourth, I have already have, have written two more. And so I have my life solution. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, like every publisher, wants big books. So he made a four in one volume, and I lost interest. <laughs> Oh. Yes.
0: Uh, talking about publishers. Um you always you also publish with very different publishers. Sometimes with very big publishers, sometimes very yeah. small. I think I counted <laughs> you see, I counted thirty different publishers on your Wikipedia yes. page. Why is this?
2: Yes, I don't know. First there was Well, yes, a yes. publisher, another publisher. <laughs> I wanted, uh, I saw, for example, the Anagrama publishers in, in Barcelona. They have beautiful covertures, tapas. Covers. Yes, and I wanted a book in Anagrama, <laughs> uh, another in Tusquets also a Catalonian. Uh, they have a beautiful black books. I want, so I give them one. <laughs> and but then I lost interest in this, and I have well two big publishers, the Random House and the Planeta, and a myriad of little. Because I did. Um, I. I never thought of having an agent. An agent? Representative. Because I thought this the most uh, snobbish thing. But uh, when they began to translate me, they began in French, in German too, in Austria, and in Italy and they sent me contracts that I signed it without reading and then I discovered that this contract have some clauses very <laughs> compromising for me uh, so, well, appeared an agent a German <laughs> agent, a German very active and, uh, that went to Buenos Aires and we made an agreement that he for he was the world. <coughs> and for me, Argentina. I don't meddle in the world, he don't meddle in Argentina. <laughs> so in Argentina it's all free. Okay, I know this? yes. I give give myself give my books to little uh. Uh, Independent publishers, friends, mm-hmm. and it's all free. And so I have the be- the best of two worlds. In Argentina, I am the gentleman writer, for <laughs> right, because not mercenary. And from the world come the money. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: it makes some of your books difficult. Some of the, especially some of the small short books yes. that were yes. published almost on paper by an independent publishers. That published. is uh, it's difficult uh, one, for one us of the
2: reasons that I like these independent publishers that they publish anything I give them. If I give them a book of 20 pages, they make a book of 20 pages, and I'm very happy to make a, a book of 20 pages. And then, well, these books go to Translation and they make compilations and I don't know nothing of this I am not interested I am very happy that uh, in this Norwegian new book they included festival because it's one of the less insatisfactory books for me <laughs> yes
0: um sh- should we maybe read something from one of the books? Um, I was thinking initially at, at, of saying something about each book, but it was actually covered in the introduction. Um, there, I mean the new Norwegian book that's been published by Judendal now. It's the first uh, novel is called The Pink Dress, and it's basically a story uh, where the protagonist in a way is pink dress. <laughs> And we follow the dress, the, uh, the yes. different owners of the dress. Through I don't remember. It, wrong it, wrong even, wrong it, wrong it wrong. even leads to a kind of civil war between the uh, Indians and the non-Indians in, in Argentina, I assume. Um, and in, um, in the second one, it's called Ghosts, and we will read a little bit from Ghosts now. And uh, this is the one that's taking place at a construction site where a family is living, and, um, but there are also ghosts living there. And as Gisle mentioned, these are not the kind of ghosts that... Th- they don't have the prototypic um, characteristic traits of goats that we usually conventionally see. Um, and there is a girl who is 15 years old who is in this age in which everybody is talking about men and love and pregnancies and that kinds of things. But she doesn't really go out very much. But one day she's invited to a party with the ghosts. Um, And the third one, it's something completely different. It's uh, called Festival. And uh, this is about a science fiction film director who shows up with his mother, who is this crazy character with a crocodile bag and a wig and always in a grumpy mood. And she makes life terrible for
2: (laughs) <laughs> Everyone at the festival. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, this uh, legend of the prolific writer that I am, when I, when it happened something in my life, they say, now you, you're going to write a novel about this. Mm-hmm. And when I was a jury in a film festival, everybody was saying what experience now you you write a novel about the the festival that is absurd because we writers don't, don't go to to our house uh, to write what happened but this time yes i i did what they think what they wanted i wrote a novel <laughs> on a festival and I invented this Antonioni of the outer space. <laughs> oh, yes. And I put the, all the characteristics of my mother. In the, in the mother. But the, you should read the description. <laughs> the idea... I said before that I need a queer idea to begin and the idea here was um, in these movies maybe you have seen that there is a plague or an attack of uh, extraterrestrials and all the humanity die except for example who has (laughs) Mustache, this, some thing, some little thing that give immunity, (laughs) and so I thought uh, maybe comes a catastrophe, uh, apocalyptic, and the only people who survive is that people that has his mother near. So when they invite this... uh, Well, that is the theory of this Antonioni of the outer space, this film director that is German or...? Belgian. Belgian,
0: yeah. Belgian, Belgian.
2: yes. Uh, When they invite him to this uh, festival that happens in in a kind of Buenos Aires, surrounded by mountains, uh, he goes with his mother, in case there is a <laughs> <laughs> an An alien play. invasion. <laughs> <of course. laughs> other other much, even them. if his mother is the most insupportable <laughs> character in the world.
0: And she hates being there. And <laughs> yes, of He hates having her there. Yeah. <laughs> um, should we read a little bit from uh, Ghosts? You can read in, in Spanish, and I will read afterwards in, uh, in Norwegian. And after that, we will open for some questions. So if you want to think of some questions that you might
2: yes. have. Yes. Who begins?
0: You begin. Um, it's marked with green. Yeah, okay.
2: <laughs> well... It's the you
0: have to remember to just add the ghosts. Oh yes,
2: <laughs> uh, and thank you again because you understood exactly what the everything in, in the life you have to pay, but how much? If it's if you have to pay with your own life, which is the price that merits some sacrifice. This en well, Subió por la escalera y volvió al contrafrente donde presentía que se reunían en mayor cantidad. En efecto, un grupo grande de fantasmas la esperaba o parecía esperarla junto al borde, pero del lado del aire, bañados en la última luz sobre el fondo del aire intenso del fin del día. Dentro de ese aire de visibilidad oscura la esperaban a ella, porque uno de ellos pronunció su nombre. ¿Qué? preguntó la patria deteniéndose a unos tres metros. ¿No querrías asistir a nuestra fiesta esta noche? Si me invitan, eso estamos haciendo. Un silencio. La patria trataba de entender lo que le habían dicho. Al fin preguntó, ¿por qué a mí? Era una fatalidad que preguntara eso, no lo respondieron. Bien pensado, no podían hacerlo. Lo dejaron a su criterio. Hubo un silencio que se prolongó algo más que el otro. ¿Y? Lo estoy pensando. ¡Ah! Parecía haber una cierta ironía en los fantasmas. En ese momento retrocedieron, sin hacer ningún movimiento, otra vez como visiones afectadas por un diferencial de distancias pero retrocedieron de todos modos y el espectáculo que le brindaron entonces a la ingenua exploradora no pudo ser más extraordinario. Una especie de hélice de luz los bañó, como al descuido, los envolvió en un amarillo invisible. El polvillo se había vuelto apenas una insinuación, una pelusa. La patria sintió que se le apretaba el corazón ante esos hombres. De hecho, Fue como si viera hombres por primera vez. «Deténgase», gritaba su alma, «no se vayan nunca». Quería verlos así por toda la eternidad, aunque la eternidad durase un instante, y sobre todo si duraba un instante, no concebía la eternidad de otra forma. «Ven, eternidad, ven y sé el instante de mi vida», exclamaba para sí misma. Claro que tendrás que estar muerta, dijo uno de ellos. Eso no tiene ninguna importancia, respondió de inmediato, apasionadamente. Su pasión quería decir otra cosa que lo que decían sus palabras. Otra cosa que no sabía qué era, pero también significaba exactamente lo que había dicho. Not so bad. No...
0: And now I will read it in translation and this translation was done by Christian Rugsta. I don't know if he's here today. Maybe. Maybe he's here. It's um um yeah, I think it's a very nice translation. I have to say I really enjoyed reading it. Ehm um, gick upp till nästa våning och bort till baksidan av byggningen, var hon förnemmad att spökena hade samlat sig i ett enda större antal. Og ganske riktig, en stor flock väntet på henne, eller skyntes och vente på henne, borte ved kanten. I luften utenfor badet i dagens sista solstråler. Inne i luften av mørk synlighet vänte de på henne, for ett av dem sa hennes. Vad spurte Patri och stånste tre meter under dem. «Har du ikke lyst til å være med på festen vår? Hvis dere inviterer mig så...» Det gör vi. Talsätt. Patri försökte att förstå vad de hade sagt till henne. Til slut frågade hon: Hvorfor mig?" Det var ett meningslöst spørgsmål. De svarte ikke. Det kunde det heller ikke göra. De överlät till henne och finna ut av det selv. Stillheten var Tystheten varte längre än gang. Nå? Jag tänker på det." Åh, Det var som om spøkelsene hade inntatt en ironisk hållning. Nå trakk de seg tilbake røre seg, på ny som syner som endret sig utelukkende ved avstandsforskjeller. Uansett trakk de seg tillbaka. Og det skudde i bø, den naive oppdagersken, var rett og slett fabelaktig. Det var som om en spiral av lys innhyllet dem i en usynlig gul glans. Kalkstøvet var nå bare en antydning, ett lag av dun. Syna dessa disse fick det att til å sig i brystet på patri. Det var som om en så män for første gang. Stans, skrek sjelen hennes, dere må ikke dra deres vei. Hun ville se dem slik i all evighet, selv om evigheten bare var et öblick, Og framför alt hvis den varte et øyeblikk. Hun kunne ikke forestille sig evigheten på en annan måte. Kom evighet, kom og vær mitt livs øyeblikk, utbrødte for sig selv. Du är er själv förgblind till att vara dö, sa ett av dem. Det betyder ingenting, svarte strax uppglödd. Känslorna hennes ville syno si antingen en ordin hennes, någonting som en ikke visste vad var. Men det betydde också att det hon hade sagt So this is the moment in which the, um, the girl is invited to the party with the uh, ghosts and um, she's told that she has to be dead if she wants to go to the party. Um, and it's th- this, this um, book, Ghost, has a lot of this surreal that your books often have. The, the characters don't react at all, really, I think, to the ghosts. No. They're surprised by completely different things. Like, for example, they're living in a construction site where they're um, making houses for rich people. And the main characters are like, oh, can you believe that they're having a swimming pool? No, you could, well, you have to see it with your own eyes if you want to believe it. And then, but there are ghosts around them, and they don't question them at all, which I think is um, it's a fantastic way of doing it.
2: Well, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. When people like a book of mine, I begin to suspect that it's not so good. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes. I don't. I don't know. One of the... I did these workers, the family that lives there Chileans. Because I have been in Chile in Chile for the first time. I had one of my first publishers was uh, a Ch- Chileans, a Chilean couple. It was Javier I forgot the name well yes it was a couple of Chileans of very high society Chilean and this was the the woman uh, editor publisher I mean uh, was the first Chilean I knew and uh, I was habituated to listen to this Chilean accent of this woman, this very aristocratic woman. And when I went to Chile for the first time, I saw that very humble people speak exactly like this woman. Chile is one of the only countries in the world, that all the social classes speak w- with, the, with the same accent. accent. Oh. Yes.
0: Interesting. So,
2: I wanted to, to make a, an homage to the Chileans' accent with these Chilean people. And now when I read this, this fragment, I remembered that all the discussions between the women of this family are about how to find un hombre de verdad. Yeah, an
0: Italian man. (laughs) A true man,
2: a real man. That is the most rare and exceptional thing in the world. And, uh, And that, so are the ghosts that are not real, but I don't know. I did. but yes the idea I think is there should when we I maybe? remember my old books I have to think who, who wrote this who wrote this what did he mean to do Yes.
0: if we want to have time for some questions I think we should uh, open the floor now um I see somebody in the corner. <laughs> in Just wait for the microphone.
1: Hello. In 1997, you wrote in the magazine El Porteño that uh, Juan José Sáre uh, broke the mold of the Latin American writers because uh, after writing each book, he will come up with a better book one. So I suppose you were being ironical towards Sar, but I wonder uh, if you, how do you... How do you feel yourself about what you said about him? And uh, if you believe that there is a a mold for Latin American writers of what is expected for them to provide, literally.
2: I don't... It's my universal answer. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, No... No, I believe in the in the difference in the individuality of writers. So taking models, all the things. No. And even Sire was a good friend for the time. He was a a good writer, but he was very jealous. And when I wrote this article, uh, he said that it was the best thing uh, written uh, on him. He made uh, great friends with me in Paris. And, but when I began to have readers, so Sire didn't like that. <laughs> At all. (laughs) For a start, but he was a a good friend. And no, I I don't know. I don't know even if Latin American is a word that signifies something, because there are so many differences uh, between our countries, the history. I wrote about a Latin American. I don't understand. ¿Puedes decir en español? Sí. Ah, sí, dije eso. I, I don't remember, no. Sí. I don't know, no. No, El Porteño was not an underground magazine and uh, yes, because there was nothing about uh, the whole work of of Sire at at this moment, so I wanted to do a a review of all his work and uh, I did it and I exaggerated a bit about uh, master but I didn't remember that I uh, qualified him of Latin American while well, he is Latin American he's Argentine but
1: Thank you, and excuse me for mentioning somebody else, but you were so very much in love with the writer with a strange name that we're so curious to to know who, who was the
2: you, you in the plane you were fascinated by one special writer, author Lee Child. Lee Child. Lee Child. Yes. Lee Child, thank you. Excuse me for not talking about your work. Jacques Liger. yes but I know no lo estoy recomendando especialmente I just wanted to ask you about the notion of literarity
0: because you were saying very early when you were talking you were saying that your novels were literary toys for adults and then you were kind of stressing the point they were literary. And I'm just curious, what what
1: does literary mean to you?
2: Well, this means that uh, when you read uh, these bestsellers' novels, Dan Brown, you don't need to have a literary formation, uh, formation, education. Education, training, yeah. a A literary training. No? One anecdote I told once, and it's not so appropriate to to to, to tell to repeat, but I repeated it. Uh, once I was walking in my neighborhood in Flores, and came. A man that I didn't know. and he, when he passed it, he said, “Hello Ida." And I looked at him asking me who who is, where uh, I have known him. And he said, you, “You don't know me. I am a reader, a humble reader. Mm. And then I begin to think, he's not so humble if he read me. He's luxury reader. Mm-hmm. humble reader is a reader of Tom Brown or the reader of these bestsellers. But to read to me, even if I am not a great writer, I am not a Kafka, but I am literary. So you have to have made all a way, a journey through literature to appreciate what I do. Mm. No? That is the literary thing of the literary toys, I think.
0: Are there any questions? Uh, Sorry, you have one more? Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Would, would you prefer uh, Johnny Carter over or... Uh,
2: Microphone. microphone, yes.
1: Can you repeat it in the microphone? Which one is of your best preference, Johnny Carter or Cecil Taylor?
2: No, Cecil Taylor, of course. No doubt. <laughs> yes. Yes, I love Cecil Taylor from almost my childhood because of my snobbish character. When I listened for the first time, this piano crazy, this uh, storm of notes, I, I found this is my thing. Um, yes, I have listened to him all my life, and last year I have the honor of Kiss His Hand. Yes, it was a great moment of my life. My other hero, Marcel Duchamp is dead, so I cannot know him, <laughs> but Cecil, yes.
0: <laughs> then I think we have to round off if there are no further questions. So thank you so much. Since I well, end. Thank
2: you. It has been a pleasant uh, conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. You have
0: been listening to Lit House, the English language podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo,
2: litteraturhuset. Music by Apotek.